Right, Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, we, we've obviously we've been going through chapter 40. We're going to jump over chapter 41 and get into 42 uh, this morning. And uh, what we'll see as we go through this morning is, or, or perhaps what we've already seen as we've studied Isaiah, is that Israel, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were a, a lesson and a study in failure. Okay, God had called them to be his people, but they failed over and over and over and over again. They, uh, they kept turning from God, and their root problem was not, um, it was not intellectual. It's not that they didn't know. It wasn't social. It wasn't financial. It wasn't even ethical or moral, particularly. Their, their root problem was, it was a spiritual problem, and they were committing idolatry. They kept turning away from God to other gods and false gods and, and other kings in the search for salvation and protection and provision. So when they were threatened, they would look somewhere other than God for help. And that really is the root of idolatry. Their trust and confidence in God really didn't run very deep. And so at the first sign of danger, they jumped ship onto something that they thought would be better for them. And because of that, they then suffered terrible consequences uh, as a result, as God disciplined them to return them back to himself. And in, uh, in chapter 41, although we're not going to read it, there's a couple of things that I just want to draw your attention to. Because in verses 1 to 20, Isaiah is, is speaking God's word, and God is assuring his people that he alone is is the one that they should stick with, that he is guiding all of human events, he's guiding all of history for their, for their benefit and for his glory, and that if they trusted him, they'd have nothing to fear, even amidst the turbulence that was surrounding them. But they did turn to idols. And so in verse 21 and following, God begins to challenge them to, okay, well, bring out your gods, bring out your idols, and let's see how powerful they are. Can they really save you? Can they really deliver you? Show, let, show, demonstrate their power. We'll have a competition about who's superior. And then God makes a statement in verse 24 where he says, behold, you idols are nothing. You gods, you false gods, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing. And it's an abomination to me if someone were to choose you. And then in verse 29, he says, Behold, again, your, um, they, they these, these false idols, are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So God really is saying, you're, you're looking in the wrong places for all of your hope. You're beholding the wrong kinds of things. When life gets difficult, you're looking for hope and life and joy and peace and protection and provision and salvation in all of the wrong places. And then Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 42, a third, behold, as the right place for where they should be looking. Now think about your own life for a second, because probably not any of us have got idols on our mantelpieces or windowsills at home that look like uh, carved images in wood or stone or metal. And although idols have now shifted to something else, we still have the same root problem within us 
that the Old Testament people of God did. That we break the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God, Jesus sums it up, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's idolatry. When, when we break that commandment, we're committing idolatry because we are turning away from the true God to other things. Or as Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, we exchange the creation for the creator. We, we say, we want that thing rather than the one who made it. And idolatry really is anything that replaces God, that, that takes the place and the priority and the devotion and the worship and the service that we should give to God. And it could be anything, couldn't it? We, we're familiar with these things. We're, we're pretty good at identifying our idols, but we're not very good at turning away from them, if you're like me. So idols in our world are like money, a particular possession, we want entertainment and pleasure. We want to engage in sex. We want fame or power or respect. Our careers can become our idols as we want to get up the ladder to the top. The family that we have could become our idol because we want to please our spouse or we want our kids to have everything. Or maybe it's the family that we don't have because we long for a spouse or, or children. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's a particular preference over Brexit. Or not. Maybe it's a sports team. But all of these things can replace God and be idols. John Calvin used to say that the human heart is a constant idol factory. It just has a way of producing things that we want to worship more than God. And here in chapter 42, Isaiah gives God's solution and remedy to idolatry. He wants us to behold the right thing. So let's read together. 42 verses 1 to 12, and then we'll jump in. Here's what Isaiah says. But more importantly, here's what God says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation's he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord and I have called you, he's addressing the servant, not us. I have called you servant in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I have given you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Bring before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So sing to the Lord a new song. 
His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voices. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us to behold your servant so that we might turn away from idols and trust more confidently and deeply in the God who is the true and living Yahweh. We pray that we would come to rest in him, in you, for hope and life and joy and peace and salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 42 is the first of four what are called servant songs in Isaiah. These are like little poems that Isaiah writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that speak about a servant who's coming from God to establish God's kingdom. And this servant is a mysterious figure. He's not really referenced by name, and there's no mention of his origin. We're just told a little bit about what he will do And as you read these servant songs, you see that actually they speak very clearly about God's Messiah who's coming to save. And this is the first one, the first of four servant songs. The other ones are in chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 53. And they do speak about the servant of God who's coming to save. And there's three things that I want us to behold this morning, if you like. Three things about this servant. We're going to behold the servant's mission. Then we're going to behold the servant's strength. And then we're going to look at the world's reaction to the servant. So we're going to begin with the servant's mission. And these really are verses 1 to 4, the servant's mission. Because in verse 1, we're introduced to the servant Uh, As God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So God introduces us to the servant. uh, And the the Hebrew word for servant means this. It's, It's a person who is at the disposal of someone else to do their will and to do their work and to represent them. So when you read servant, don't read Downton Abbey, Footman, Butler, maidservant, what you should read is really ambassador. That is that kind of role. It's someone who is appointed and at the disposal of another to carry out the will and the work and represent that person on earth. And God tells us that he has chosen this servant and he is beloved by God. He is the delight of God and he is empowered by the spirit of God to come and do the work of almighty God, the God who was revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, what's this work that the servant has come to do? Well, three times in the opening four verses, we see the same word repeated, and that's the word justice. The mission of this servant is justice. And it's not just justice for Israel. It's justice, if you notice, for all the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations, verse 1. Now, justice is a common word in the Old Testament. Okay, It was a word that was banded around a lot, and our understanding of justice is kind of like legal correctness, or maybe we would say, 
Oh, justice implies receiving the just penalty for one's transgressions and having that penalty executed justly. So if you murder someone, you receive justice if you are sentenced to life and you go to prison. That's justice being done. And that, that certainly was a, an element of justice in the Old Testament, but it actually is a, is a much bigger and wider word than what we might think is just legal correctness. It's actually a word used in uh, Exodus chapter 26. So if you read Exodus with us in RBT, you might have come across this word. Um, but in Exodus 26 verse 30, God uses the word justice when he gives Moses the, the plans and the blueprints for the tabernacle. So he, he says, here's what you've got to do. Here's my plan. Here's my blueprint for the tabernacle. And that word that is translated plan or blueprint in Exodus 26 is the word justice. It's the same word. Okay, so the idea biblically of justice is, is this idea that God is calling this servant to bring about justice, or in other words, to bring God's blueprint and plan for the nations. He's coming to bring forth justice. He's coming to bring forth and establish God's blueprint, God's plan for the world and human existence as the way it should have been. Okay, so this servant is going to come and he's going to right all injustices by bringing in what God considers to be right. By doing what is right in God's sight and making everything right and restoring God's original blueprint and his original plan for a just and righteous world. And a, and a just and righteous created order. And he's going to restore it, restore that which sin has destroyed. And ruined. So, in other words, when when we read in verse one, the son or the servant, sorry, will bring forth justice. It's it's basically saying he's going to bring forth God's kingdom on earth, just as it is in heaven. Now, think about justice in our society. Because go back to that illustration of if you murder someone, you're able to you, you know justice is done when they're sentenced and put into prison. But it's beyond our power to really bring about restoration, isn't it? Because even though we might sentence the murderer to prison, you can't bring the victim back to life and restore what would be proper justice to things that the way they should have been. It's beyond our power. It's beyond even perhaps our comprehension to be able to do that, but not to this servant. Three times we're told he will repair and restore the blueprint of God's creation to just the way it should have been. So that every wrong will be righted, everything that is broken will be fixed, and there will be true justice on the earth. And think about the things that we see as being so unjust. So we perhaps switch on our TVs and we see slums and we see poverty in certain countries or we see people begging on the street or homeless in our city. There's oppression and violence, illiteracy and pollution, climate change, political dysfunction, miscarriages of justice, genocide, evil, suffering, abuse, cruelty, racism, hatred, bigotry. Society's ills and human misery in so many different forms will all be gone 
when God restores his blueprint, his justice, through the servant. It doesn't just stop there, does it? His mission doesn't stop there because it goes on in verses 6 and 7 where the Lord is addressing this servant and and really calling him to what he is going to do. And so in verse 6 we say, listen, I have called you the servant in righteousness and I'm going to take you by the hand and I will keep you and I'm going to give you as a covenant for the people. You'll be a light for the nations. You'll open the eyes that are blind. You'll bring out prisoners from the dungeon. You'll, You'll free those who are in darkness. So the mission of the servant is not just justice, but it's salvation. It's transformation. He's going to bring people from darkness to light. He's going to bring people from bondage and prison to freedom and liberty. He's going to open up not just the physical eyes of the blind, but he's going to open up the darkened spiritual eyes so that his power and his light might illuminate our souls forever. He's going to be a covenant. He's a promise. That's going to be extended beyond Israel to the nations, to people like you and me. And in verse 9, God just says, I'm doing new things. I'm doing new things, things that are not seen before. New things. Light, life, liberty. Now, think about the history of our sin-cursed world for a moment. You know, if you get out a history book, there are page after page, literally history is littered with various attempts of powerful yet corrupt human beings trying to build their own empires for their own glory. They wage savage wars and oppression on other people to build their own kingdom for their own glory. So that goes from Nebuchadnezzar in in biblical times to uh, various Roman emperors like Julius Caesar or Caligula to Alexander the Great. Then you fast forward a few hundred years and you get people like Genghis Khan or Ivan the Terrible or Napoleon or then into modern day Stalin, Hitler, Idi Amin in Uganda, right down to our own sort of very recent times, Saddam Hussein and even the guy uh, in North Korea, what's his name, Kim Jong-il, thank you, you know, all of these men, tyrants, trying to establish their own kingdom, etch their name in history through blood as they oppress and conquer and crush all that stand in front of their own tyrannical ambition. But God's servant is different. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Because in contrast to a sort of a power-hungry wannabe king, verses 2 and 3 describe the manner in which this servant will carry out his mission. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So this king... This servant is not going to come screaming and shouting and boasting and bullying his way to the top. He's not coming with self-promotion or ostentatious displays of power and ambition and pride. He's not going to come with propaganda to convince you to follow him. He's not going to come with a kind of a relentless brutality and a force to just make you do what, you're going to, what he wants you to do. He's not a drill sergeant who's just barking orders at people. Do this, do that, serve me, worship me. He's not 
riling people into the streets in protest. He's not causing uprisings or riots. No, in fact, he's coming with a gentle quietness to establish a topsy-turvy kingdom. Look at the two images that Isaiah uses here to describe the way that he's going to come. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. If you take a walk to a pond, probably what you'll see is pond reeds, long, tall plants with a very narrow stem that's basically hollow with a little kind of fluffy thing on the top. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. You don't make furniture from pond reeds because when you bruise them or squeeze them together, they become useless. They snap very easily. They break. They bend under the slightest weight. And Isaiah says, the servant, he won't even break a bruised reed. Then he gives us another illustration of this kind of the smoldering, faintly burning wick. We all know this. We light candles in our houses and then you blow them out and the ember of the wick still sort of glows red and that smoke you know, that it gives off that you know if you walk into a house, oh, someone's just blown out a candle because we're all familiar with the smoldering wick. And here Isaiah says the servant will come and he won't snuff out the wick. You know, like you do, lick your fingers and you just... It's not hot enough to burn you. It's not going to cause you any damage. Kids, don't do this at home, just in case. Don't want anybody suing me for... Oh, he, he was telling us about the application of the message is put candles out with your fingers. No, that's not what God says because that's not what God does. He doesn't snuff out a faintly smoldering wick. So Israel, in their particular situation, they had been crushed under the Babylonians. They felt like a bruised reed. They felt like a smoldering wick. Were they just about to be extinguished once and for all? And God says, my servant is coming. My ambassador is coming. And they go, what's he going to do? He's going to bring justice. Uh-oh. They must have thought, we're for the chop. And then Isaiah says, no, he's not going to come and chop you down. He's not going to come and snuff you out. He's gentle and compassionate. Now listen, don't mistake that for weak. He's not weak. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until or before he has established justice in the earth. So he's not weak. He's able to do all that he's commissioned to do. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. He will accomplish justice on the earth. He'll do it. He's not weak, but he is meek. There's a very important difference. He's not weak, he's meek, he's compassionate, he's patient, he's gentle, he's kind, he's faithful. And that's good news for sin-sick people like you and me. People who perhaps we woke up this morning and you might not have identified yourself as a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, but that's how you feel. You know, you... Some of the ways in which we're bruised or, or we're smoldering wicks is, is we, <clears throat> we're fighting sin and it just feels really hard. And the battle is difficult and the scars of sin and failure are on our souls. Or maybe it's that we're just running in rebellion to God. 
We hear what he wants us to do and we just say, no, not interested. Or maybe we are bruised because the circumstances and just the situations of our lives just take their, their toll on us. We ask ourselves questions like, is this all there is? Am I ever going to change? Is my faith really going to last or is it going to be snuffed out? And here Isaiah wants to come and he says, look at the servant. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't snuff out those who are at breaking point because of their situation. Isaiah 42 is a promise for you and for me this morning that says to us, God has sent his servant to save us. He will rescue us. He will not break us. He will not crush us. He will not snuff us out, but he will deal gently and compassionately with us. He'll open our eyes to see him. He'll set us free from the dungeon of darkness and sin and death. Isaiah 61 will go on to say that he will bind up the brokenhearted. He'll he'll set the captives free. He will come and he will heal the wounds. He'll fan into flame the embers of your dying faith. In fact, the servant actually builds his kingdom with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks as he transforms them from darkness to light. And he does that from, with sinners from every nation, including us. Really, what Isaiah would say in one word is this, the servant's coming with grace. The servant is coming with grace for a people who don't deserve it. He's coming to treat them as they don't deserve. And so we're supposed to drink encouragement from this text this morning. We're supposed to drink it out because the Lord's chosen one, the the one with divine strength and divine courage, who's not weak but meek, who has courage and stamina, he will do what he has said he will do. He's coming to save and to transform bruised reeds and smoldering wicks and to bring about God's perfect plan and blueprint, his justice on this world. Good news, huh? Good news. Well, maybe you're sat there and you're thinking, all right, sounds good, but how can we be sure that God really is able to do all that he says? Well, that's where Isaiah takes us next, because after showing us the servant's mission, he now shows us the servant's strength. And really, these are found in verses 5 to 9, because in verses 5 and 6, God tells us, he speaks, God speaks, he tells us that he is backing the servant. Look with me at verse 6. Thus says God, the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and life spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord and I have called the servant in righteousness and I'll take him by the hand and I'll keep him and I'll give him as a covenant to the peoples, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. The servant is commissioned by God himself. The same God that we read about two chapters earlier in Isaiah 40. The God of all power, the God of all wisdom, the God of all goodness is the same God who backs this servant to the hilt. 
Look at the way he describes himself. He says, thus says God the Lord, Yahweh, the promise-keeping, promise-making God. He backs him. The God who stretched out the heavens and the earth. The sovereign creator of everything backs the servant. The one who gives life and strength to all people backs the servant. The one who is unmatched in holiness and power. Who in verse 8 he says, I am the Lord. Basically he says, I am the I am. That's who I am. <laughs> All right, I am the I am. That is my name. That's who I am. That's what he says. I am the I am. That's who I am. My glory I give to nobody else. No one can match me. I don't share it around. Nobody comes close to me. I'm unmatched in power and supremacy and glory. I'm back in the servant. Therefore, you can trust him to accomplish all that I've commissioned him to do. He says, I'll take him by the hand. And I'll keep him so God is going to lead this servant and he's going to give him everything he needs. All of the resources and the provisions and the strength that this servant needs to successfully accomplish the mission. God promises it to him. I'll give it to you, I'll guide you, and I'll keep you. All these new things that I'm saying I'm going to do, God says, you can be sure because, verse 9, the former things that I've told you about I've brought to pass. So promises of future grace are backed up by reminders of past grace. I am the I am. That's who I am. I don't share my glory with another. I don't give praises to carved idols. So dump them. Dump all your idols. Dump all those things that you're, uh, you're tempted to trust in. And instead, trust in me and my servant. That's what God says to us this morning. The servant who is full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. The servant who is backed by the sovereign Lord, verse 6. The one who is fully and totally empowered. The same as the God of heaven. He will not fail in his mission. But then, if you know, 700 years pass by. 400 of which that God doesn't even speak. They're called the silent years. And Israel started to question, well, when is this new thing going to happen? Is it really going to happen at all? And then on a starry night, on a hillside out of, outside of Bethlehem, an angel appears to a bunch of shepherds and lights up the sky. And what does the angel say in Luke chapter 2, verse 10? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the peoples. For unto you this day is born in Bethlehem a Savior. Who is the servant, the Messiah, the Christ from the Lord? See that? Everything that the angel said finds its roots here in the first servant song. Behold. And the baby born to the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, grew into the man, Jesus Christ, the carpenter turned prophet from that obscure town of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth. And think about the life of Jesus. 
At his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. It looked like a dove coming down from heaven. And then there was a voice from heaven that said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. That sounds like verse 1 of Isaiah 42 to me. Then this Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 went around proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. He was proclaiming God's justice. I'm here to deliver God's blueprint, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Then this one, he went around and he healed the sick and he healed blind eyes. And he brought liberty to those who were oppressed by the darkness of demonic forces. And he offered forgiveness of sins. This one who was announced, uh, who announces to bruised reeds and, and faintly burning wicks. So remember what he says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is gentle. Uh, sorry, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the same Jesus who announced in Mark 10, 45, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the same Jesus who stood before the most powerful empire the world had seen at that time and declared in John 19, sorry, 18, verse 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. This is the same Jesus who came not to overthrow human kingdoms, but came to conquer sin and death at the cost of his very own life and blood, absorbing in his body as it hung on the tree all of the punishment and the wrath of God that we deserved. And in so doing, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved, delighted in Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then later in Colossians 2, he says, by his blood, he's made peace, reconciling all things to himself. In fact, Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21, Matthew specifically takes Isaiah 42, and he stamps it on Jesus, and he says, the servant is the son. Jesus, the incarnate, God with us, the light of the world, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the servant come to rescue people from every tribe and language and nation, to set us free from sin and death and Satan and hell, who's come to bring God's justice on the earth. He's here. He's come. And then Isaiah wants us to see the only fitting response to such a servant. Look with me at verses 10 through 12, because the world's response to the servant is this. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The only fitting response to this servant is worship. It's to sing new songs of praise and thanksgiving for who he is and all that he has done. And it draw, it's, it's Isaiah's call. He's saying, everybody from the ends of the earth, everyone who's been touched by the grace of God, come and sing. Whether you're in the coastlands, on an island like us, whether it's in the desert, in the city, in the village, in the mountains, come and shout and give glory to God for his servant, both now and evermore. Praise his holy name. That's what we're going to do right now. So if the band wants to come back, we're going to stand and we're going to just finish our time singing songs of praise and thanksgiving for the servant who has come and saved us and set us free. For he is worthy of beholding. Let's pray.